Hey folks, before we dive into today's episode, we've got some exciting news for you. Mark your calendars for September 17th to 19th, 2024, because Bioport Atlantic is on the horizon. This marks the 23rd year of bringing together the brightest minds in the life sciences sector. This year's theme, Powered by Possibilities, promises to ignite inspiration and foster collaboration amongst attendees. Whether you are an entrepreneur, a researcher, an investor, or a student eager to dive into the world of life sciences, our conference offers something for everyone. Save the date, and for more details, visit lifesciencesnovascotia.ca slash bioportatlantic, or check the link in our show notes. Can't wait to see you at Bioport Atlantic 2024. Hey everybody, it's Taylor here. Before we get to today's episode, I have a favor to ask you. If you've been listening to this series and an episode or maybe a a particular piece in an episode has jumped out at you and you thought, wow, that's really interesting. And there is somebody in your life that would benefit from knowing that piece of information or listening to that particular episode. Share it with them. Send it to them. And if you've been liking this series so far, if you could like, follow, subscribe, rate the show, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, that would mean the world to us. We want more and more people to listen to the show and to know about the amazing companies that are coming out of Nova Scotia. Thanks. Enjoy today's episode. Hi, can you do something for me? Take a look at your left hand. And now you're right. Look at your fingers. What do you see? What is the thing that almost all people have in common when they look at their hands? They see rings. I don't think this is something shocking to you. When I said that, you probably shrugged your shoulders and thought, yeah, so what? Well, rings are so ubiquitous that your reaction is completely justified. But it's also the ubiquitous nature of rings that make them so fascinating. Why do we wear them? Why do we care about them? And why is it so devastating when a ring that we've worn forever is lost? From Life Sciences Nova Scotia and Snack Labs, welcome to New Wave, a podcast that explores the pioneers that are shaping the future of life sciences. Humans have been wearing rings for over 5,000 years. Pick out any civilization of record, and you'll find evidence of people wearing rings for cultural, personal, or religious reasons. I guess, is there a, is there a civilization or is there a pocket of the world in which you could find where jewelry isn't of any significance? Um, I can't think of one, no. But I mean, if you, you the sort of what I would call sort of sophisticated jewelry in a sense, really, we're talking about about five thousand years. That's Jack Ogden. Okay. Well, my name is Jack Ogden. Um, I'm a jewelry historian, which is a strange sort of career to be in. It started in an odd way because I was born into a jewelry family, four four generations in a big retail jewelry company in the UK, 
But by the age of seven, I was passionately interested in archaeology. So somehow these sort of two things joined together. Rings have been worn as signals and symbols by the Romans, Persians, Ottomans, Europeans, American indigenous tribes, the Incas, Amazonians. Everywhere you look, you will find rings being used as a way to indicate anything from marriage, career designation, social class, or religious beliefs. I had a friend growing up who wore a bunch of rings, and I thought it was so cool. I looked at my fingers and thought, I could never pull that off. I think subconsciously I couldn't wait to be married just so that I could wear a ring for a reason other than thinking that it would be cool. But when I met my partner, we both agreed that we weren't really into the whole wedding thing. For all intents and purposes, we're married. We own a house, we have two daughters, but we never officially got married. When you talk about symbolism, what you're really talking about is purpose. Because I mean, you you know, you, you, today, I mean, when you think of rings, for most people, on the, the kind of the main ring they'll get in their life is going to be a marriage ring, wedding ring, or engagement ring, because sometimes they combine to one. Um, so that has incredible meaning. In a sense, it has a purpose. I mean, you sh- you should know if you're married, <laughs> but somehow this is a, this is an outward sign, both reminder to yourself in some circumstances and a, a sign to the rest of the world that you, that you are married. So there's, it, it, in the sense of symbolizing, but it has, I think all symbols have a purpose. A couple of years ago, we decided to get rings made. We spent weeks searching out a bespoke ring maker whose work spoke to us. I used one person and my partner used another. We became really invested in the process because it felt like these rings were not just a symbol of the future that we would share together, but also a symbol of the adventure and love and dedication that we had already bagged a decade's worth up until that point. I wish there was something cooler to tell you about that story, but it's really just a way of conveying what you probably feel too. The ring I wear to symbolize my relationship with the most important person in my life means a lot to me. It is us, our children. It's the home that we've pieced together for years. It's our core shared values and how we see the world. And it's all encapsulated in a small piece of metal wrapped around our fingers. It wasn't expensive. It's not worth anything to anyone else. If someone picked my ring up off the ground, they might be more inclined to throw it in the trash than to try it on their finger. There's a wonderful story from Egypt that survived on the papyrus. There's a story that dates back to, you know, it's a, a more, well, getting on for 5,000 years, four and a half thousand years old story. There's this pharaoh being entertained by young ladies rowing in a boat, wearing not many clothes. And um, one of them drops her pendant into the water. It's a pendant in the shape of the fish. She drops into the water. So the, the pharaoh says, oh, don't mind, I'll, I'll get you a new one. She says, no, I want my own back. Now, to turn down the pharaoh's gift because you want your own, I think that, that shows some sort of sentimental connection. And I've always taken that as been the first indication of a, that we have a record of, of a sentimental attachment to a particular piece of jewel. And this is what is fascinating about rings. Our personal relationship to an object and how we can imbue it with so much purpose and meaning and how it so often takes the shape of a circular metal band slipped onto a finger. Anyway, luckily there was a magician handy and he sort of sp- parted the waters and got the pendant back. But it's a, it's a nice story, I think. It shows something about the importance of jewellery on a personal level, even, even four and a half thousand years ago. 
You have random things hanging on your wall, eh? Say again? Random things hanging on your wall, like barbecue tongs. and They must all have some sentimental value. They, they all do have a strange, uh, <laughs> Good story. Have a strange uh, thing to them. Um, and these are like books, a bunch of books of like authors that we've had on the show and um, some like fan art. What else is here? Beautiful. I honestly can't tell you um, where the sentimental where the where the sentimental value comes for the leather mask. I know it's scary, actually. Mary Lynn is a worldly adventurer, and her work and career has taken her many places. Okay, my name's Mary Lynn, and everyone usually calls me ML. She spent many years in the beauty of Bavaria, and now she spends her time on the boardwalk of the world famous Peggy's Cove. Mary Lynn sits and she paints. She is captivated by the swell of the ocean, and it is the muse for most of her work. In fact, when she came into our recording studio to speak with me, she left us with a most unique gift. Would you like uh, something else to add to your wall? It, <laughs> Always. It, I, uh, something I've been painting on recently is a sword off a swordfish. Okay, cool. Like a real swordfish, and they're about, that, they're about that long. And so I just paint a typical sort of ocean scene of Peggy's Cove. And um, I mean, really, I, I ran out of canvas. And so I went to one of the fishermen, and, and I saw these swords, and I said, what's this? It's very porous, takes lots of paint. But it was fun, the paint on it. So I've done quite, I've got it before in my car right now. I'd give, I'll give you one. And she did give us one. And it is incredible. So I've got to say, Mary Lynn is a very talented artist. And I've been painting freelance mostly in Peggy's Cove for about nine years now. And I learned to paint when I had the good fortune of living in Munich for about four years. Uh, it was just a great study of art and art history. And my friends, when I came back to Nova Scotia after a long, long absence, because this was my home, but I'd been gone for 35 years. And I came back home, found a beautiful little place on St. Margaret's Bay. And out walking with some of my good arty, artsy friends, they said, pick up that brush, start painting. And I said, thought, yeah. And I've been doing it for nine years. And you mostly can find me in Peggy's Cove painting freelance on the boardwalk or down along the grasses or the rocks. And they're mostly outdoor seascapes of Nova Scotia. And I call most of my paintings under the umbrella of maritime inspirations because that's where I get my inspiration. As soon as Mary Lynn sat down across from me, my eye was immediately drawn to her hand. One of her fingers was adorned with a beautiful gold ring. It was wide with a pattern that weaved its way in and out of itself, giving the effect that it had no beginning and no end. Okay, well, yes, uh, the ring. It certainly means a lot. It's actually a combination of three very sentimental rings that are heirloom pieces that I have been able to have in my life for quite a long time. A little piece of my mom, a little piece of my great-grandmother, and a little piece of my, my marriage. And... Uh, Oh, back in 2015, I really wanted to combine them and make them something unique, something special. And I met this wonderful jeweler, artisan. I went to him. I said, could you do this in, in a combination? And he made this gorgeous gold and white gold ring for me with nine different diamonds. It's very heavy. It sits beautifully on my hand. And I just uh, really, really love it. And Stephen did an excellent job. And at first, I wasn't quite sure I could afford him. But he always admired the fact that I was a painter. And he said, Marilyn, I'll negotiate with you. If you give me one of your beautiful seascapes, I will negotiate a good price for you for the ring. And so we negotiated, and I got my ring, and he got his painting. First of all, very cool. 
I was taken with the idea of having someone amalgamate multiple pieces of jewelry into one, swirling meaning and sentiment from various aspects of life. And secondly, I was really hit by the idea of a ring that gets passed down through generations. I remember when I was very young, my mom told me that someday I would become very curious about where I come from. And when that curiosity struck, I could come and speak with her about my family's lineage and all the pain and hardship and sacrifice and triumph that was baked into my blood by generations of family who had come before me. I don't have any family heirlooms that tangibly link me to my past. And my mom was right. I am curious. And I found myself thinking about what it would mean if I had something that symbolized the collective experience of generations that have led to me sitting here speaking to you. Well, um, one goes back to my great-great-aunt Mary, who lived in England. And through various generations, the women kept passing down certain pieces of jewelry. And through that particular longevity, I was able to inherit a gorgeous old ring that I only wore temporarily. My mom gave it to me. And through her, her mother gave it to her. And so we have that lovely little history. And the second one was one given to me by my very dear aunt. Her name was Mary. She was an artist. And she always wore this gorgeous ring with um, three little diamonds and a beautiful sapphire. And one day she came to visit me in Ottawa and she said, I want to bequeath this to you. You do what you will with it, but do something special. And I wore it faithfully, just as it was for years. And then, um, of course, I had a, a small ring that was given to me by my then husband. It's not really that sentimental anymore due to changes in my life. But I decided to combine a little piece of that with these two other pieces of history and create this gorgeous ring. Why did Tolkien choose a ring? Out of all the things he could have had as a symbol of something, I mean, why was it the ring? Because I think that's the closest personal thing, isn't it, in a way? I mean, it wouldn't have made, if it was a sort of a, a, a tiara or a pair of shoes or something, it wouldn't have had the same feeling. I think this, I mean, I know it's nothing, I actually I just thought about it then, but I can't, why he would have thought of, why, why make the ring the central thing, one ring to bind them all, rather than one pair of shoes or one belt or one crown. It was, it was, it was a very, very personal central thing, wasn't it? It's interesting. It's deep in the human psyche somehow. On a not-so-notable day, Mary Lynn was walking her dog when the lifespan of her ring and all of the things it represents was thrown into jeopardy. <laughs> it happened on a really beautiful day, like a winter's day, and I was walking my dog. His name's Kobe. He's a Swiss white German shepherd. He's absolutely fabulous dog, great friend, and usually walks extremely loyal just right by my side. I had him on a long leash, and as we were walking out in St. Margaret's Bay on one of the back trails, a deer went by. And my and my Kobe jolted. He jolted my hand and I had the leash in my, my right hand. And it as he jolted, the leash caught around my gold ring and it jolted the ring too. And little did I know at the time, but he chipped a bone inside my, my hand. And you know, he didn't get the deer, but he certainly startled me. Her finger began to swell. And her ring was getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Now, by the minute, her urgency to remove the ring, now stuck in place due to the inflammation, was rising. If she waited any longer, it may not be the ring she would be saying goodbye to. It would be her finger. 
And when I got home a couple of days later, I noticed my hand was swelling up and I thought it just sprained it or it was just banged. And I didn't really pay much attention to it. Put a little bit of ice on it. I did take a long time before I actually sought out some good medical help. Days went by and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And it was one of my sisters said, that's looking pretty nasty. So I drove to the um, Cobequid Emergency Health Center. I went into the ER. They looked at my hand and they, uh, they took you know, a lot of time looking at it. On her first attempt to get help, Mary Lynn ran into a couple of interesting methods that funnily enough are commonplace in ERs around the world. And a young nurse came, an ER nurse. She wrapped a string around my finger, saying this was a very common thing to remove rings and tighten up my hand as much as possible. The string did not work. She was trying to cut down any friction between my skin and the ring. It didn't work. In fact, it just got worse and worse, and my fingers started turning purple. My nails were turning white. The ER doctor came in. He tried. He said, oh, we're going to cut it off. He brought a, a somewhat like a power saw, a little tiny one, and he started scraping across the top of my ring, and it kept jumping because the ring is so ornate and it has all these different grooves and it's quite thick. He said, this is not going to work. But the ER doc did have one more idea about how Mary Lynn could solve her increasingly more urgent problem. He said, I have an idea. I know somebody who has something called the Ring Rescuer. It's a device and it's over the Dartmouth General. Let me see if I can make a phone call. He was gone for a few moments. He said, Mary Lynn, Dr. Kevin Spencer is waiting for you. At the Dartmouth General Hospital, he's going to help you. He has just what it takes to help you. I thought, wow, this, this is great. I hopped in my car, and I drove to the Dartmouth General, and Dr. Spencer met me fairly quickly, like he was expecting me. So I'm Kevin Spencer. I'm an emergency department physician. Kevin Spencer isn't just an emergency room doc, though, as if that isn't enough. Also a mechanical engineer by, by training as well. And I'm the president, CEO, and, and director at Ring Rescue, one of the co-founders at Ring Rescue Incorporated. Ring Rescue is a life science company headquartered in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And they've innovated a solution to one of the many widespread but seemingly forgotten problems that plague the ER, ring removal. You'd be forgiven for thinking that this can't be that big of a problem. But you'd be wrong. This is a worldwide problem. It, it's a niche problem, but it's a true worldwide problem that comes up regularly. We actually estimate over 100,000 times a month in North America, healthcare providers and fire rescue professionals are seeing this problem and managing it. So this is happening a lot. And on top of all of that, just for a bit more context to understand the type of person that Kevin is, he was also a shortlist candidate to join Canada's astronaut program between clinical medicine, engineering, as you mentioned, um, and some of my activities, I like to fix things, the, the paramedic background for you know, hands-on um, medical care, and also um, just some hobbies and sports and surfing and water activities and being comfortable in water, which is a big part of astronaut training, of course. So I, I started looking at this and saying, I, I actually have a, a decent application, I think. I'm going to take this seriously. There was around 3,500 initial applicants, and I made it to the top 72 group. And uh, through that, I was able to go do some in-person testing with the Canadian Space Agency. So to make a vast understatement, Kevin is a multifaceted guy. One of those facets is being an entrepreneur who saw a big opportunity within a commonly disregarded problem that historically has had an insufficient solution. For much too long, if you found yourself in a similar situation to Mary Lynn, 
and you found yourself in the ER with a ring that needs to be removed ASAP, you might look around and feel like you're getting medical treatment, but the reality is that you were likely to receive something that more closely resembles a live recording of a DIY YouTube video. What, what is the problem with stuck rings? Why did we start this company? Why as a physician, as an emergency department physician, do I recognize this as being a problem? And the answer is hundreds of millions of people wear rings every single day. Everybody in the world, it's, it's a common cultural, important cultural aspect worldwide. It goes back thousands of years. People wear rings. And traditionally, rings were made of gold and silver. And, and those metals can be cut reasonably easily with any number of tools because they're softer metals. But rings have changed over the last 20 years or 30 years. And more and more and more, what we're seeing is stainless steel, titanium, tungsten carbide rings, cobalt, different rings, even the new Aura ring, which is a wearable, essentially Apple watch on your finger. Um, rings have changed. The technologies to remove rings have not changed. Hundreds of millions of people still wear rings. And so when fingers swell for any number of reasons, rings get stuck. And if rings can't be removed, they can strangle a finger. It can become a medical emergency. And, and patients and, and people go to hospitals and fire departments with stuck rings on their finger looking for solutions. Now, if you're on the receiving side of that as a, a healthcare provider, you, you have a simple stuck ring that can be cut easily. It's not much of a problem. You can cut the ring off. Um, but what happens, of course, is some rings, many rings are very sentimental, very expensive. And first of all, people don't want their rings cut if they don't need them cut. They would prefer them not to be cut. They're wearing them. They're important to people. And so if you can avoid cutting the ring, that's important to patients. Before this, people did try to shrink a finger by wrapping dental floss around a finger and, and other you know, string wrap type techniques. And you can see these all over YouTube. It's kind of funny because people will talk about a stuck ring case on social media and inevitably somebody, multiple people are going to say, use dental floss, put wrap dental floss around your finger. And the idea that this is a definitive solution is just false. In fact, we often see stuck rings that have failed these attempts and you have what's now called an angry finger because you're tightly wrapping this thin material a whole bunch of times around your finger, essentially strangling your finger in hopes you can get this ring off. If you don't get the ring off, what happens is the swelling's now worse. You've made the finger worse. It's sore. Sometimes it's cut up a little bit. It's bruised. It's certainly more swollen than when you started. And the stuck ring is even more stuck. So then you're left with um, improvising solutions. There's no more any medical devices for this problem. You're now getting um, into an improvised state of mind and saying, well, this ring has to come off. It can strangle this patient's finger. We need to get creative as healthcare providers. That's when you start getting out Dremels and hardware store tools and all kinds of stuff like that. And as you can imagine, imagine taking a Dremel, high-speed 30,000 RPM Dremel with sparks flying to your finger. That's exactly how it goes. When you really stop to think about it, isn't that insane? Think about all of the things we've just learned about in this series. And not the innovations of the companies we've profiled, but just the adjacent medical technology that has made its way into our stories. There's something for everything. Everything. But if you need to get a ring cut off before it causes a finger to be amputated, well then it's time to pull out the power drill you bought at Home Depot. Uh, so there's a great case of a stuck cobalt ring. That it was a patient that I had, and um, and cobalt is another very very difficult metal to cut. And so this ring was stuck, and I was 
faced with this problem. And so we used a Dremel that we have in our department and we burned through our blades. And so now I have a patient with a slightly cut ring, still stuck on his finger, not cut all the way through, and a Dremel with the, the, I think the two or three blades that came with the kit were all burned out now. So we had to get somebody to go to Princess Auto, a hardware store, 10 or 15 minutes away from the hospital to purchase more blades, bring them back to the hospital and keep cutting. And so when you consider the time and effort that goes into this one case of a stuck ring, had to see the patient, had to and make an attempt at ring cutting, went through the equipment we had, had to go to the hardware store. A couple of our nurses had to drive over there, pick the stuff up. Thankfully, it was still during business hours. It was outside of business hours. It's a whole different problem. Came back with, an, I think, a six or seven blades, burned through most of those. Once you make one cut in a ring, you're not done. You still have to make a cut on the other side because you make a cut in a ring, it's still a circle around your finger. You can't pry these things apart, they're, they're too stiff. So now you have to repeat the whole process with another whole second cut. And this experience that I had with this cobalt ring took several hours and it mirrors the experience of healthcare providers everywhere. Did you pick up on that? Did your mind pull at that little thread sticking out of what Kevin just said? Several hours to accomplish this task in the emergency room. And that's not an uncommon experience. Particularly if you're listening to this with a Canadian ear, think of the emergency room wait times. 100,000 emergency cases per month that require ring removal in North America. And this is taking hours instead of minutes. Ring Rescue was born out of an engineering competition. A team of four students asked doctors what they felt was a common medical problem that had a suboptimal technological solution. What they came up with was essentially a blood pressure cuff for your finger. So what's the origins of our Ring Rescue team and our co-founders and the original idea for the product and the company? The way this all started... um, my two co-founder partners, Patrick and Brad, who are, are still with the company, had uh, two other partners at the time, and in, in, they were final year engineering students at Dalhousie Mechanical Engineering. And they created a device to shrink a finger for the purposes of ring removal. And, and the way it was presented didn't ha- wouldn't really work in a clinical setting, but the concept w- was great. And that was the foundation of our first product, which is the ring rescue compression device, to shrink a finger to make a finger skinnier so you can get stuck rings off without having to cut them off. That was the foundation. And when I, where I met Patrick and Brad was actually at their final year engineering uh, competition. It's called the Capstone Competition. And then every year, the final uh, year classes present their project to a panel of judges. And I was invited to be a judge for this event. I was there and I saw this project that, that Patrick and Brad and the other and, and their colleagues put together. And I thought, wow, this is really, really cool. Like, I, I like it. Stuck rings are a, a big problem. I mean, you don't see it every single day in the emergency department, but certainly when they come in, they're problematic. And I really like this as a, an idea to manage the problem in a unique way. I asked them if they wanted to team up and try to take this to the next level, and they did. The compression device was an incredible beginning for ring rescue. In many cases, the finger just needed to be shrunk. And if it could be, the ring would be saved. But there are cases that are too severe to shrink a finger. And that calls for a different solution. A solution that up until now, as we've learned, has essentially been left up to our friends in the power tool industry instead of the medical one. Ring cutters are supposed to be medical devices. This is a medical procedure. 
as they're defined. And so the traditional medical device ring cutters that exist are a little manual. They look like can openers. You spin the blade by hand and they can cut through simple gold rings. And they, they were very effective at solving traditional thin gold rings from years ago. As I mentioned, rings have changed, ring materials have changed, and those ring cutters cannot solve thicker rings, harder ring materials, newer ring styles. And so when you consider titanium, stainless steel, tungsten carbide, cobalt, all these new metals that are very, very common, you know, tungsten carbide, for example, represents about 25% of new rings sold today in North America. So a quarter of new rings for, for men's wedding bands are tungsten carbide. Very, very popular metal. It's one of the hardest metals in the world. There's a, there's a scale we use. It's called the Moore's Hardness Scale. It's, it tops out next to diamond. So it cannot be cut by traditional tools. Now, I'm looking at your ring in front of me. That looks like it's probably either titanium, stainless, or tungsten carbide. Which, which is it? It's titanium. And so titanium is another great example. I mean, everybody knows titanium is a hard metal, right? So the question is, if that gets stuck on your finger, what are you going to use to cut it off? And now with our products, it's a very easy solution. The Dolphin ring cutter that we invented cuts titanium, it cuts tungsten carbide, cuts all these metals, no problem, very, very safely. It's really remarkable that it can do this. It doesn't matter what ring it is, we want to, divide, we want to make this device such that the end user doesn't need to be an expert in what rings are, what they're made of. All you need to do is pick up our product. If you have to cut that ring, my nine-year-old daughter taught a four-year-old how to cut a titanium ring off my finger at my kitchen table. And so now, if you find yourself in an accidental finger trap, the Dolphin Ring Cutter can be used to cut your ring off quickly, easily, and painlessly. And for the first time, because of the blade that's used and how efficiently it cuts through metal, a ring that is cut off can be remade. When we spoke with Kevin, he had me put on a ring, and he cut it off my finger in about three minutes. It cuts the ring in two places, making it into two halves. The cut mark is so fine that you can hug the two pieces of the ring back together, and you'd have to squint your eyes to see that it was ever cut in the first place. This means you could get it remade really easily. And so when you consider the comparing that to a Dremel, for example, or any high-speed rotary tool, 20, 30,000 RPM, it's 60 to 200 miles an hour of linear velocity at the cutting surface, at the ring surface. So it's 100 mile an hour projectiles coming off of there. Our disc runs at 0.8 miles per hour at the cutting surface. But wait, what happened with Mary Lynn? He took me into um, one of the rooms, talked to me and looked at my ring, x-rayed my hand. Oh gosh, he had a, he just a wonderful demeanor as far as making me feel relaxed and confident. He said, I'm confident I can help you. We're going to get that ring off. Don't you worry. I'm really confident. And uh, after a few x-rays and I laid down, he did um, put a, some kind of a freezing in between the webs of my fingers. And then he put this percussion cup, sort of like when you get your blood pressure done, around my finger. And he pumped it and he, and he said, oh, it's going to take about five minutes for it to cool down. And, and then he took it off and we looked. And he said, see the difference already? My, my fingers start to look skinnier. He said, I think we have to do it again. So he repeated the thing. And then eventually he started taking his, his own hands and he slowly maneuvered my finger and he took my ring off safely, all fully intact. Um, I, was, I was thrilled. In researching this episode and speaking with Kevin, 
I was honestly floored by how many places needed to have one of these devices on hand. Family doctor clinics and hospitals are the obvious ones, but what didn't occur to me was all of the adjacent professions that might interact with someone who needs a ring to be cut off at a moment's notice. Jewelry stores, fire stations, police stations, and last but not least, funeral homes. What I really love about the story of ring rescue is how simple it is. There are problems in the medical world that don't have great solutions. But the one they have is just enough to put off finding a better one. These problems are lying in wait for someone like Kevin or a group of curious engineering students to uncover and create something that not only makes a job easier, cleaner, or more efficient, but also takes into consideration what it will mean to the patient that benefits from it. We began our story with talking about the importance of rings. We've worn them for thousands of years. Every culture in the history of modern civilization has used them to symbolize its beliefs and social structures, and their significance is deeply personal. When we lose them to accident or tragedy, a little piece of us, and in some cases, a little piece of our ancestry, goes with it. Thankfully, though, we've got curious, entrepreneurial minds aplenty right here in Nova Scotia that are hardwired to see solutions where others see only problems. I mean, surprisingly, I mean, after having done this for more than half a century, I'm not bored with it yet. So obviously it's got some sort of hold over me. Uh, But almost every piece of jewelry that I look at, whether it's sort of 5,000 years old or 50 years old, I can learn something new from it. There's always something it can tell you. And it's just a matter of learning to observe and ask. I mean, too many people tell jewellery or any kind of art what they think of it. It's good, it's bad, it's beautiful, it's pretty, nice use of of whatever. But I think one has to turn it around the other way and say, what can it tell me? Which is what really you're doing, is what can the jewellery tell you or tell society about people? New Wave is a Life Sciences Nova Scotia podcast, and it's produced by Snack Labs. It's written and hosted by me, Taylor McGilvery, and it's edited by Brian Stever, Jeremy Saunders, and me. Sound design and engineering by Donovan Morgan. Special thanks to the team at Life Sciences Nova Scotia, Sean Awalt, Doris Grant, Carrie Manette, Kira McGlinchey, and Laurie Ann Coring. And to our guests. <laughs>